Today is March 29th, 2021. The Derek Chauvin trial kicks off. Spring breakers in Miami stay rowdy. And the ship is still stuck in the Suez Canal. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today. We have been working tirelessly all the weekend long to bring you all the best news and, news and insights from both the left and the right side of the aisle and working our hardest to try and parse through all of it to split the difference and find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. Y'all, I can say with a hundred percent degree of certainty that this is the best podcast that we have done so far for a multitude of reasons that I know that many of you will see as we continue throughout the episode. <laughs> as always, y'all, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day. Story number one. So for our first story of the day, the Derek Chauvin trial kicks off today. This is one of the biggest trials probably within the past 30 years. Uh, the entire nation, eyes, the eyes of the entire nation will be on the arguments presented over the next few weeks as people await a verdict on arguably one of the most hated men in America right now. This past year has been absolutely rife with gigantic stories, Politics has become more divided and racial tensions especially have come to a fevered pitch, much of it hinging on the death of George Floyd last year underneath the knee of Derek Chauvin, a police officer in the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, I know over this last year, there have been so many different things that have come up. We have, I mean, even just over the past six or seven months on this podcast, covered a wide gambit of different things that have been going out, going on in politics and in throughout, you know, the entire world. And I think it's, it's been very easy for me because of the current pace of the news and media environment to not necessarily forget what happened last year, but not really remember all of the details around it. So as we sit down today, we're going to look through what some of the opening arguments are going to be around the trial, uh, what the, the prosecution and the defense are likely going to argue. Uh, we're also going to, I think, talk through a bit of the timeline and the stuff that happened around the death of George Floyd, because I think it's incredibly important to, to see and to recognize looking back on it almost a year later, the significance of that event, because it, it, it ignited a, a not only nationwide, but a worldwide cause call for justice, um, especially uh, stemming from and coming from the left side of the aisle uh, that have ignited racial tensions in a way that that really haven't haven't been, I guess, purported or promulgated in a very, very long time. So uh, last year, towards the end of May, a, a video very quickly hit social media of a man named George Floyd dying at the hands of Derek Chauvin, a police officer there in Minneapolis. And to say that it caused outrage doesn't really come close to touching the amount of protests and the amount of anger that, that lashed out around this incident. It tipped off months and months of people pouring into the streets. Many of those turned to violence and rioting, although it was a small portion of it. I believe the last statistic that I read uh, said that the violent, violent protests and riots were only a, accounted for about 4% of the total protests and riots. Uh, those oftentimes were the ones that caught the most news. Um, 
So in case anybody has really, really forgotten. So uh, George Floyd died on May 26th of 2020. Within days, uh, people spilled into the streets first in Minneapolis where his death actually occurred. And then within days of that, rioters attacked the Minneapolis police stations and various precincts where they, they believed that the police officers worked. Uh, many people may remember uh, the videos and the pictures of uh, the police department and the police precinct actually being like firebombed always Molotov cocktails being thrown all over it. Uh, it was burning up in flames. Uh, people were d absolutely destroying the building in protest to what happened uh, within the next week of George Floyd's death. Protests erupted across the country and then actually across the world. So over 2,000 different cities held protests in over 60 different countries. So this wasn't just an American phenomenon. It actually was going on all around the world as people were standing uh, in united against police brutality, but uh, mainly united for uh, the causes of justice for black and minority people, uh, not only in the United States, but the world over as well. It is estimated that up to 26 million people participated in protests in the United States alone. Just in the United States, 26 million people, which is roughly eight to nine percent of our entire total population in the United States. The United States has about 330 million people in it. So 26 million is 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 a large portion of our population. 200 cities in the United States imposed curfews over the following month or so. Uh, and over 96,000 National Guard troops were activated across the country. This was also in response to COVID restrictions as well, various problems happening with the pandemic that was going on. But starting at George Floyd's death and, and leading up over the next couple months, almost 100,000 National Guard troops were deployed and activated in and throughout the country. By the end of June, at least 14,000 people had been arrested in connection with some sort of protests. That includes both violent and nonviolent uh, reasons for arrest. An estimated $1 to $2 billion of damages were done to property across the United States, making it the single highest amount of damages for a wave of protests in the history of the United States. Okay, It actually surpassed uh, the Rodney King protests that, were happening, that happened in California in the early 90s around the killing of a black man named Rodney King. At one point, if we remember back, an entire portion of the city of Seattle was taken over by protesters and declared in an autonomous zone. I mean, it was like six city blocks were actually taken over by armed protesters in the heart of Seattle. Okay, so I can't stress enough how incredibly important it is this specific case and this specific moment in time is to so many people across our country. Uh, the outcome of this, I think, is going to set the stage for uh, a lot more political discourse over the next coming years. And I think that it likely can and will frustrate 
a large amount of people, no matter what the outcome of this trial actually is. We have legal processes here in the United States for absolutely everyone. It doesn't matter how heinous the crime is. It doesn't matter who the individual was that supposedly committed the crime. We have to have processes in place because it is important for every single person to have due process. It is outlined in the, within the heart of our Constitution for every single person to be able to have a defense for whatever action they're being charged with. So Chauvin, Derek Chauvin himself, is charged with a few things, okay? The first is second-degree murder, which is the crime of unintentionally causing Mr. Floyd's death while assaulting him. The second is third-degree murder, which Minnesota law defines as causing the death of another through an eminently dangerous act and evincing a depraved mind. So the idea is basically uh, that Chauvin uh, caused the death of George Floyd uh, through the actions that he took, uh, but it doesn't. in order for it to be first-degree murder, it has to be premeditated. And so there's no way that they'd be able to prove any type of premeditation because it didn't look like there was evidence for that. So that's why he's not being charged with any type of first-degree murder charge. So for someone with no prior felony offenses like Derek Chauvin, Minnesota sentencing guidelines recommend a sentence of 128 to 180 months for both charges, though the maximum punishment, I believe, can be much higher than that. So that's somewhere the recommenda recommendation under Minnesota law, somewhere around 10 to 15 years total. Uh, he also faces a charge of second degree manslaughter, which is much less than a murder charge. Uh, but nonetheless, he is also still charged with that. So the prosecution is very much going to be depending on the video that sparked the protests. Uh, many are expecting this to pretty much be at the crux of the arguments that they present and have everything else, all of the other arguments, everything else basically built around this video. And this is a very compelling argument and a very compelling case. The video, if you have not watched it, is 8 minutes and 46 seconds long and is absolutely gut-wrenching to watch, okay? It is difficult to watch even just a few seconds of it, let alone the entirety of the almost 9 minutes of George Floyd laying on the ground with Derek Chauvin's knee into the back of his neck as George Floyd is laying on the ground screaming out that he can't breathe, calling for his mother, you know, basically begging for his life in a lot of ways. Uh, Floyd, uh, there's no doubt, uh, knew that he was in imminent danger. You can hear people around the video as well, that around what was happening, that were screaming and asking for him to get off of George Floyd's neck. Um, it, it was a terrifying scene, to say the least, and the prosecution obviously will plan on using this as one of the key pieces uh, of their trial and how they're going to structure a lot of the arguments around uh, George Floyd's death because they obviously have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the defense as well, but they have to prove you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that Derek Chauvin purposefully uh, killed George Floyd in order for him to be convicted of a murder charge, okay? So uh, 
George Floyd laying on the ground screaming, I can't breathe, uh, later became a very, very popular calling card uh, for Black Lives Matter protesters, not only in the United States, but uh, throughout the world as well. Uh, the hashtag I can't breathe was all over social media for a very long time. Uh, many uh, at protests were wearing face masks and T-shirts that said hashtag I can't breathe became a very popular mantra to basically signify and, and call back to the events that happened around George Floyd's death. Uh, George Floyd appeared to stop breathing around the five minute mark or so. And Chauvin continued to keep his knee on his neck for the next three and a half minutes. Um, using the incredibly brutal footage to elicit the emotional and very difficult response from the jury um, is the plan of the prosecution and is something that has worked in other cases in the past and is, has also been effective. Okay, so that, I think that's what the prosecution is planning on doing. The defense is expected to use the autopsy report released after George Floyd's death and to, to kind of work to cast reasonable doubt over his death because that is the legal threshold uh, required for convicting someone of murder. So the Hennepin County's chief medical examiner, Andrew Baker, labeled it Mr. Floyd's death a homicide. That's what he labeled the death as, meaning that the actions of someone else contributed to his dying. But... He also said that Mr. Floyd had a potentially fatal level of fentanyl in his system along with methamphetamines. Mr. Baker said that there was no anatomic evidence of injury to Mr. Floyd's neck or autopsy evidence that blood or air supply was cut off. And that's according to a summary of an interview with the FBI and federal prosecutors that were filed as evidence. Okay, so the key to Derek Chauvin's defense will likely rely upon his lawyer's ability to cast him as somebody that was doing a very, very difficult job, a very dangerous job, to the best of his ability, using the training that he had been given underneath the Minneapolis Police Department, okay? If they are able to cast even a shred of doubt on whether or not Chauvin actually caused Floyd to die, he could be acquitted from all all charges outside of the manslaughter charge, which, the you know, the threshold for evidence is considerably lower. So, Convicting someone of murder is incredibly difficult because it should be, okay? It should be difficult to convict someone of murdering. That is a very hefty charge to level against someone, and it will come down to how well each side is able to argue their points in front of the jurors, just like, you know, any other case in the United States. And contrary to many of the, to the views that many people have that have watched the video and feel like this is a totally open and shut case, it's not by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that this country can and should prepare themselves for another wave of protests, depending on how the trial goes. Um, I will say this though, in kind of closing comments around this trial as it starts, as it starts to pick up steam and, and get its opening arguments out today. This trial highlights how abundantly clear the need is for positive police reform. Okay. Although I'm not for the whole defund the police movement that, that, that I think caught a lot of steam following George Floyd's death, especially on the left, I do think that the left has really tried to push forward on or at least be open to the conversation of reforming the United States criminal justice system and United States police departments across the country. I have been... I think openly and vocally very disappointed in how large of a portion of the right have almost even defended the actions of Derek Chauvin simply because the left decided that they, that they hated him. 
Okay. Uh, they have a lot of the right have even refused to entertain the idea of reforming the police systems within the United States, which I openly say and believe that the United States has an incredibly unique and very, very effective judicial system. Okay. However, there is always room for growth and there are plenty of areas within our criminal criminal system right now that are very broken and that are in desperate need for change. If Derek Chauvin is found not guilty because he was following his training, then I think that it is incredibly fair to say that there needs to be a complete and total audit of how police are trained in the United States and how continuing education is carried out in many of the police departments across the country. That is not a far leap to make. If Derek Chauvin was just following protocol, and that eight minutes and 46 seconds of that video is Derek Chauvin just doing what he was told, then we have police officers that are being told incredibly poor information. Okay. And I, I do appreciate the work that the left side of the aisle is doing to try and hopefully push this conversation to the forefront of the thought of a lot of Americans, because it's one that needs to be had. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So story number two is spring break in Miami. So apparently spring break in Florida is on and popping right now. People have flooded down to Miami, especially to celebrate spring break, which people oftentimes do, except this time it is record breaking. I think it gives honestly a little bit of insight into what vacationers are going to do and others throughout the country. Uh, are going to be ready for once COVID restrictions actually lift. Florida's, you know, one of the few states in the country that has pretty much lifted a lot of the different restrictions that they've had around coronavirus, and people are flooding down into Florida to be able to vacation and party, and they are partying. So Florida has famously not really followed the status quo with COVID at all. Uh, many states that have been touted by the media as the leaders in how their responses have gone, such as California with Gavin Newsom, in New York, uh, with, um, Andrew Cuomo, I've seen way more cases, uh, of COVID and many other health issues that have arisen as a result. I believe Florida has a higher number of new cases than New York, but does not have even close to the amount of deaths they have. Uh, Florida, on the other hand, has unashamedly stayed open as much as it possibly could. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of running things completely different. Uh, for the most part, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has gotten a lot of flack in the media for the decisions that he's made. Uh, he also, at CPAC last month, at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando, declared that the Sunshine State was, quote, an oasis of freedom in a nation suffering from the yoke of oppressive lockdowns. Obviously, uh, DeSantis is ready for Florida to be wide open and ready for business. I will say, though, you can't really argue with the numbers. Um, Florida just honestly has not fared nearly as poorly, especially in the number of deaths that other large states have. Uh, California, uh, right now, Florida has just over 2 million total, new ca total cases of coronavirus over the past year with around 33,000 deaths. California has 3.66 million total cases and almost 60,000 deaths. New York has 1.8 million total cases, but almost 50,000 deaths. So, uh, obviously this has prompted Florida to open up even more and has led to a gigantic amount of people flooding there. So let's go ahead and hop in real quick. This is uh, good morning America doing a little bit of reporting on what's going on with the spring breakers down in Miami. 
Good morning, Robin. We are right along Ocean Drive. This is the heart of South Beach's entertainment district where the mayor says things have gotten out of control. We were here last night watching police do their best trying to disperse these large crowds, thousands of people who left here and then went into side streets and more residential areas. The city is just desperate to get a handle on the situation. It was another chaotic night on Miami Beach. The city of Miami Beach is currently under a state of emergency. The city extending a state of emergency Sunday after throngs of mostly maskless crowds descended into the entertainment district over the weekend. Dancing on cars, drinking in the streets, defying an 8 p.m. curfew. Okay, so uh, if you haven't really looked up any videos or anything, they are absolutely wild. I mean, people are going bonkers down there, breaking cars, vandalizing things, holding bottles of liquor and smoking pot in the streets. I mean, like, buck wild. Uh, this is obviously raising alarms from people. This is going to cause rises in cases of COVID. The ramping up of vaccines have been happening across the country, and a lot of officials are worried about and saying that this could actually fuel more COVID case increases, not only in Florida, but across the country because the majority of people that are going down to Miami are actually out of state. Um, and, and, you know, it's not too far of a leap to think that these people are going down there. If they get COVID, they're then taking it back with them to all the different communities that they're from. And the last thing that needs to happen is a further spike in cases due to people just kind of being negligent and going out and partying and doing a bunch of wild stuff. The second interesting aspect about this is how I think it paints a great picture of how the majority of the country is going to react when the restrictions are lifted widely across the nation and they can do whatever they want. Now, Obviously, I don't I don't think that's, you know, what the degree to what's happening in Miami right now is going to be seen across the entire country. But people are very much ready to get out and party and enjoy themselves and think, you know, I think that most people don't realize the effects that spending over a year socially distanced from everybody, primarily staying within your house and restricted from doing what you want actually has on people. And when things do finally lift, I think it's and people are able to freely kind of go out again and do whatever they want. I think it's, you know, a fairly easy call to make to say that what's happening in, in Miami right now is kind of just a precursor to what's going to happen across the country. Okay. There's going to be people that are ready to vacation to ready to go out, party, have a good time and enjoy themselves. So the last interesting point about this is actually maybe not really what you'll expect. So Miami beach, um, officially announced a curfew and have been arresting people in the streets over around 1000 in total. Uh, and many have decried the tactics of some Miami police officers and, you know, the Miami police department as a whole saying that they are over the top and primarily racist. Okay. This has been a, a, a big talking point on the left over the past week, which was incredibly surprising to me. Um, many on the left have said that because the majority of the people that are there at spring break are black and brown, basically minority people are saying that the police are racist for arresting people, ignoring the laws. And it's kind of mind blowing to me, but it's important to talk about. So I'm going to talk through it a bit. One of my serious qualms with the left is how very often they cry racism, okay? And please hear me when I say, racism is a terrible evil that our society has and needs to reckon with, okay? And some of us have to, you know, have to reckon with it on the daily basis, especially people that are black and minorities within the United States. They come face to face with this with racism in the United States on the daily basis, okay? But when racism atta is attached to everything, 
regardless of the merit of the claim, it devalues the legitimacy of calling out racism in the wider arena. There is absolutely zero evidence that I can find that the cops in Miami are participating in racist policing right now. The vast majority of the people that are being arrested are black and Hispanic. That is true. Because of the incredibly large portion of the people down there vacationing right now and partying also happen to be black and Hispanic, which has been increasingly seen as a place where black and Hispanic tourists go to vacation over the last few years. So like that's just a lot of black and Hispanic people like to vacation there. Okay, nothing wrong with that. The narrative is being pushed now on the left. And this is another example of police brutality against blacks in the area. Just to let you guys know, the Miami Police Department is made up of almost almost entirely of minority police officers, okay? It is a 54% Hispanic, 27% black, and only 19% white or other, okay? So the idea that black and Hispanic police officers are purposefully going out and perpetuating racist arrests of people of their own races is absolute bunk, Okay? But people are running with it. The reason why it's frustrating to me is because I do think it delegitimizes actual instances of racism where they exist. Those instances need to be called out. They need attention to be called upon them. They need conversations to be had around them. But you can't cry wolf, especially on the left side of the aisle, and then be surprised when people don't take you seriously. You just can't. And it's frustrating to me because I'm like, racism is a conversation people need to have about. I openly talk about racism on this channel because I want for those conversations to be had, right? But you can't on the left cry racism when racism really does not appear to be there, okay? And maybe I'm wrong, and if I am, I am totally open to having conversations and having my mind changed about this. However, it seems like the left is crying wolf right now, and that's not a good look. So, with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story, story number three. So for the third story of the day, the Suez Canal is blocked up by a ship and it is not looking good. This is not political. It's just bonkers. So I felt like I had to talk about it. So uh, the Suez Canal is, being, is one of the largest trade routes in the entire world. It's pretty much the primary trade route that connects Asia with Europe and keeps ships from having to go all the way around uh, the southern tip of Africa, which adds about two weeks to a ship's route uh, and a gigantic amount of costs. Uh, a ship got stuck in the Suez Canal last Tuesday, um, and Egyptian authorities have been working pretty much around the clock to get the blockage cleared. However, the ship, as of this morning, is still there. Uh, the ship is named Ever Given. It is a 1,300-foot-long cargo ship that is carrying over 18,000 shipping containers, which, in case you were wondering, is a lot. Uh, it was going from Asia and was heading towards the, ne the Netherlands to drop off all of the containers that it has. Uh, there have been more than 300 ships that have been kept from going through the canal just in this past week alone, with more ships that are being delayed every day. Uh, Egyptian authorities are really unsure about how long it's going to take to get it unstuck from where it's at right now. Uh, the dredging company actually came out with the CEO of the dredging company in this past week, came out and said that he believes it's going to be weeks. So that's not good. 14 tugboats have been, have joined in to try and get the ship unlodged 
and dredgers have moved 27 tons or 54,000 pounds worth of dirt and soil to a depth of 60 feet to try and get it to budge and it has not moved. Shipping rates for oil product uh, tankers have already doubled within the last week and many other goods are starting to begin to feel the effects as well. Uh, Syria specifically has already begun to ration fuel because much of the oil that they get and rely on comes through the Suez Canal. So, only reason why I think the story is worth talking about, uh, even though it's not really a left or a right issue on this show, is because I think for most of the world, we just kind of expect things to arrive on time and don't really think about the fact that on the daily basis, there's an incredibly complex uh, and vast global, global supply chain that operates every single day. The Suez Canal alone has an average of 50 ships a day pass through it. 50 ships a day. That is over 18,000 ships a year. I did the maths, which, you know, if all of the cargo ships were around the same size as the one that's stuck right now, which the majority of them aren't, but that is over 300 million containers a year just through the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal only sees approximately 10 to 12% of the global shipping in the world. That is so much. Mind blown. Uh, It was actually really interesting uh, doing some research and reading on all this over the past week because I, like many of you, literally never think about the global supply chain. I just don't. I have a friend or two that works in uh, GSCOM and uh, they enjoy it and they think about it obviously a lot, but I don't ever think about it. And until something like this happens, we, you know, don't really realize how fragile that global supply chain actually is. All it takes is one ship to be blown by some wind in a canal half a world away and billions and billions of dollars are on the line. It is just crazy stuff. Uh, I will also say there's been a lot of people trying to make light of it, posting a bunch of memes and stuff online, uh, and they've been really, really funny. So if you get a chance to go and look up some of the memes... They're pretty hilarious. So with all of that having been said, that is the end of our third story and our last story. Let's go ahead and hop on in to the last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week, or really, I guess this past weekend was getting out and going fishing with a couple, my brother and another buddy of ours, catching a whole bunch of fish. My brother in the matter of like two or three hours caught like 10 or 12 fish absolutely blew everybody else out of the water, but that always ends up happening because he's way better at fishing than I am. And I know that he's going to hear this and he's totally going to rub it in my face. But uh, we had a great time. Uh, We had the rolling clouds of pollen just pushing across the pond towards us because it's late March in South Carolina. And that's the reality that we have to live, have to live with. We had a great time. It was a beautiful day. We had some great weather. It was actually warm for the first time in a while. And it was really, really nice. It reminded me of how great it is to be able to get out and enjoy good weather and hang out with some friends. And I'm very much looking forward to being able to do that now that we're kind of going into summer and then we're kind of putting the winter months behind us now. So that was definitely what made me smile over the past couple of days. So with all that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much for stopping by, for listening in, and for checking us out. As always, y'all remember, I'm on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference, and my website at SplitTheDifference.com. 
Remember that is with one T. Go and find me in all those places. Drop me some likes and subscribes. Give me some five stars and some thumbs up because all of those make a huge difference in helping me to know what kind of content to curate for y'all. And of course, to be able to get my name out into the public sphere uh, to a whole bunch of people that may not have had the opportunity to hear from me before. So uh, remember, as always, y'all, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.